Four and a half very long years after the referendum, the day has finally come and the post-Brexit trade agreement has been signed into British law. We'll get the view from Brussels. Then in the United States, President Donald Trump is spending the final gasps of his presidency pushing through arms deals with the Middle East. We'll have a roundup as well of what we learned in 2020. That's all coming up right here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition coming to you from Studio 2 at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It has been a long, winding and deeply tedious road and it's not over yet. The person who believes we have heard the last of Brexit is possessed of a degree of optimism which should be studied by scientists, specifically psychiatrists. But after four and a half years, one referendum, three prime ministers, two general elections, a quantity of delays and extensions of which we frankly lost track and un countable harsh and or petty words, a post-Brexit trade deal was signed into British law. Taking effect at 2300 GMT tonight, as the Brexit transition period ends, the law was a result of an extremely brisk 14-hour parliamentary scrutiny. So how do our European partners now see things? Well, Hosokli Makiyama, director of the European Centre for International Political Economy, joined me a bit earlier. We in Brussels tend to be quite self-celebratory about our achievements, but we are obviously highly ambivalent about this one. Obviously, as a good or bad divorce, um, we have lost one-tenth of our budget, one-sixth of our GDP, and perhaps the only European country that that had a strategic capability that goes outside of Europe. So obviously, we are both weakened. But in the end, there is a sense of relief that we can finally move on and actually deal with other more pertinent issues than actually a domestic divorce. If we look at the deal itself, um, does the EU at least think, you know, unsatisfactory, though the big picture is, does the EU at least think it got the best of this deal? Well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, When it comes to trade negotiation, no one gets everything they want. They may ask for it. They might scream murder if they don't. But in the end, there's a deep sense of realism that uh, both sides need to get what they want. And in this sense, I think it's fair to say that Europe got most of its priorities and understanding of some of the more grandstanding issues, for example, like level playing field, was perhaps unrealistic to begin with. There is not a single trade agreement in the world that commits uh, um, one side of the agreement to the rules of the other side. So, you know, I think in the end, both the UK and the EU got pretty much what they wanted. But most of all, for the EU, continued duty-free and quota-free access to the UK market and the UK consumers was a much bigger priority that we wanted to actually portray in the media. I mean, it was never going to be the case that the EU was going to allow the UK to have as good a deal as it had while it was actually a member of the organisation. But over and above that, has that been, or has there been any desire on the EU's part to, to punish the UK somewhat as it leaves? Uh, indeed. Um, it was a... Um it was an important uh, it was an important objective i think for especially france and germany in order to keep the house together keep the family together 
to make sure that any way of leaving would be, uh, well, frankly speaking, quite expensive. And it has been. Uh, but also, on the other side, it was actually a cost that at least the hardcore Brexiteers were ready to take. Uh, and that actually made the negotiation uh, much more difficult for Brussels, because in many respects, it was a little bit like playing strip poker with an exhibitionist uh, who actually wanted to get naked and was actually ready to take on the cost. So in, in that sense, many of the leverages that the EU was trying to use against the UK simply didn't work. Well, what does the EU now anticipate? And I guess what should British people now anticipate that the UK is going to learn the hard way over coming weeks and months? Because for all the new regimen that comes into effect uh, a little less than 11 hours, from now, this isn't going to be the end of the Brexit process, is it? No. uh, Many of the most uh, sensitive sticking points are still outstanding. The final uh, deal on fisheries is still to be worked out. And uh, and of course, uh, as they very often say in the trade negotiation, devil is in the details. And uh, how some of the mechanism that is anticipated in this trade agreement is not yet really fleshed out. So there is plenty of room for, well, disagreement. But also, in addition, um, there is no guarantee so far about regulatory conformity, for example, on financial services and privacy that are offensive interests for the UK. And uh, these are actually outside of any trade agreement, which basically means that the EU would at some point decide, is UK law still compliant with EU standards? And so there will be a lot of uh, horse trading um, over sectorial issues like banking and retail and other services areas going forward. And not to mention, of course, product standards of various kinds of everything from cucumbers to electronics that needs to be negotiated. But what's your sense of how the EU plans to deal with the UK in coming years? Because if you think, you know, years, maybe even decades down the track, do you think the EU regards the UK now as a permanently lost cause or is there hope or anticipation that one day it'll be back? The... Um the careful optimism uh, or, let's say, uh, wistfulness that has been expressed by EU leaders, I think, is genuine. Uh, many of uh, EU leaders have either studied in London, worked in uh, London, uh, or have a genuine warm feelings about the UK. It's not just because of its consumer demand and strategic capabilities that we want UK in Europe. It is because it belongs in Europe. And actually, I would say that uh, to the extent that Brexit has caused an identity crisis in the UK, uh, you can also see a similar counter reaction to that in Brussels. Uh, If uh, a family member suddenly said, I don't want to be a part of this family, it causes you to reflect on who you are. And uh, so I think it's perhaps not for this current generation of leaders to figure out how UK might come back. Um, But it is probably somewhere in the stars for a much wiser posterity to figure out how EU and the UK will basically cross paths again. 
But one thing is certain, I think, which is that EU was not really ready uh, for someone who did not really want to be a member, who didn't want to become a annex or a um, affiliated member like Norway or Switzerland or Liechtenstein, uh, but wanted to have a completely different relationship, like almost like a satellite that circles around the Earth without necessarily crashing into it. And this is a track that we have to invent. And EU policy has always been dynamic and we make up things as we go along. And this is exactly what I think is happening now. That was Hosuk Lee Makiyama, director of the European Centre for International Political Economy, speaking to me earlier. US President Donald Trump is spending the final gasps of his presidency pushing through arms deals with the Middle East, even though such military support is widely opposed by Congress and the American public. Of particular concern are agreements to supply hardware to Saudi Arabia, Egypt and the United Arab Emirates. To find out more, Monocle's Georgina Godwin spoke to Brian Clark. Associate Professor in Global Politics at UCL and a columnist for The Washington Post. What benefit is this to Donald Trump, given that he's about to leave office? Why does he need to please these countries? Well, there's the official explanation and then there's there's another plausible explanation that's much more worrying. The, the official explanation for these arms sales is that they're supposed to provide a counterweight to Iran in the Middle East and that these countries are reliable US allies in terms of Uh, counterbalancing Iranian expansion in the Middle East. Now, the problem is that Donald Trump, unlike past U.S. presidents, actually has personal financial skin in this game because he has significant business conflicts of interest in these countries, particularly in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. His business ties to Saudi Arabia go back decades. He was bailed out by the Saudi royal family in the early 1990s, and he had businesses registered in the kingdom as recently as December 2016. And in the UAE, he has a golf course. And on top of that, he also was courted for a multi-billion dollar investment deal just before taking office. So it raises the obvious and disturbing question of whether these multi-million, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of U.S. arms sales in the closing days of his presidency are going to be used to cash in in post-presidency business deals. So can he actually just do this unanimously? Surely it has to be approved elsewhere. Well, the U.S. president has a lot of latitude with foreign policy, and this is something that that Trump is basically going to be able to push through. What's unclear is whether any of it will be able to be undone by incoming President Joe Biden, because things don't happen immediately, right? I mean, it's not like Trump signs signs an arms deal and immediately the arms are transferred. So what's less clear at this stage is how much of this can be unwound by Joe Biden. And I think this is the the big question of Biden's early presidency is how important is it to him that he sends a signal that the days of unequivocal praise for dictators from the United States are over. Now, to to be fair to Trump, he is not the first U.S. president to cozy up to Saudi Arabia or to Egypt or to other Middle East dictatorships. That's a long bipartisan stain. But the difference is that past U.S. presidents condemned the human rights abuses of those regimes while they also sold arms. Now, you may say that's a minor thing, but it had significant consequences in the decision-making calculus of other bloodthirsty regimes around the world when they at least saw that it mattered to the United States if you behaved in this way, that there could be condemnation. And so, you know, I think that the, the conflicts of interest and also the complete embrace of these dictators 
is a massive departure from U.S. foreign policy in the past. And Biden can very quickly send a signal that there's a new sheriff in town and that he won't take this sort of human rights abuses without any sort of consequences or condemnation. Mm. Well, talking about the new sheriff in town, of course, uh, uh, current Vice President Pence will have a significant role in, in Biden coming into office in, in, the, in the whole sort of ceremony of it. But there's court cases around this. Tell us what's going on here. Well, there's still, you know, the, the Trump is still trying to claim that the election was rigged against him, which is not true and that he secretly won all of the swing states that he lost, again, not true. Um, there's a certification procedure in early January, on January 6th, that will go through the Senate. And this is a formality. I mean, it's, 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 it's just completely a formality. People like me have to look this thing, this type of procedure up because it just never even enters the news. It is so routine. And this time around, there's going to be, apparently, a challenge to the certification of the result in the U.S. Senate, which will force a vote. This is a terrible vote for the Republicans politically because all but a reasonably small number of Americans understand that the election happened, that Trump lost, and that Biden won. And so it will force Republicans to go on record either you know, basically professing loyalty to Trump against the evidence and saying that, yes, he did win in their sort of fantasy world, or standing up to Trump and saying, no, democracy matters, the election happened, he lost. Uh, it's, it's a terrible spectacle for the U.S. to have to go through because Repub some Republicans will likely vote against the results of a very clear democratic election, which is you know, one step away from authoritarianism and a, a, a fitting, uh, depressing end to a presidency that has consistently tried to chip away at democracy both at home and abroad. And I mean, we are seeing, though, high-profile Republicans turn against him. For instance, Mitch McConnell. Well, I think Mitch McConnell understands that this is a losing prospect politically. And if, if, if there's been one thing that's the guiding compass of Mitch McConnell for the last four years, it has been winning. Um, and I think that for, for him, he understands this puts uh, senators in, in his caucus in a very, very difficult position within a party in which you get punished politically for accepting the results of a democratic election simply because that is perceived as being standing up to Trump. And I think that's the most toxic dynamic that has existed in US politics in modern history, where accepting a democratic election is politically costly to one party. So, you know, Mitch McConnell understands that, but he has been very weak in pushing back against Trump on this, right? I mean, the Senate can really do things to stand up to the president if they want to. And Mitch McConnell has had very mealy mouth condemnation of this to the point where it's been so grudging that you can tell that he is not very keen on being seen as opposing Donald Trump as he again tries to mount effectively an authoritarian power grab to stay in power despite the results of the election. And finally, for an end-of-year special, regular listeners to Monocle24 will notice that we round off each week with a montage of the things we've learnt during the previous seven days. This week, we took a crack at summarising everything we've learned this year, which, if nothing else, felt very much like the kind of year from which we should have learned things. Here goes. We learned this week that the producers had had another one of their ideas. No! 
But we learned, or at least conceded after emerging from the thunderous sulk which traditionally descends at such moments, that the idea did have some merit. The idea was this, that for this episode only, we expand the usual remit of what we learned this week to embrace what we learned this year. Tempting though it would be to beginneth and endeth this particular lesson with the injunction, when in Wuhan, maybe give the bat wellington a swerve, we decided upon mature reflection and inability to come up with any real reason not to do as we were instructed, to crack on with it. So let's have that clip of general muttered approval. It might not sound quite right for this week, but everyone's still on holiday, so we can't do a new one. Yeah. And one of those fanfares. And probably by now also that clip of everyone saying, get on with it. Come Just on. get on with it. Come on. Anyway, we learned this year, and for reasons requiring no further elaboration, a great deal about working from home. We learned how to repurpose those bookcases we originally crammed full of unread volumes to impress visitors as gravitas-conferring Zoom backgrounds. We learned that it is remarkably easy to reassure yourself that there's nothing at all wrong with eating pizza for breakfast and cereal for dinner. Actually, did anyone try cereal on pizza? We'll report back. And we all learned probably less than our impeccable early intentions promised of yoga, knitting, pottery, Proust, conversational Latin, Icelandic sagas, medieval Persian history, feral hog breeding, flamenco bassoon, or whatever self-deluding course of self-improvement you embarked upon yourself. And judging by social media circa the first wave of lockdowns, we learned far, far, far too bloody much about baking sourdough bread. There now follows a complete roll call in alphabetical order of everyone on Earth who is even slightly interested in your sourdough bread. Many of us learned, to the likely colossal relief of our fellow citizens, that we really don't have a novel or folk prog concept album in us. More usefully, we learned, or so one can only wearily hope, that electing bloviating clowns, grandstanding yahoos and or certifiable dingbats to high public office is all fun and games until there's a global pandemic. We learned that there appeared to be this curious, unfathomable correlation between broadly competent government by reasonable people possessed of some clue what they were doing and preferable outcomes on the COVID-19 front. Today there are no active cases in New Zealand. We have tested almost 40,000 people for COVID-19 in the past 17 days and none have tested positive. We also learned, largely from the United Kingdom and the United States, that voting, whether out of boredom or spite, for people because they were amusing on television and or annoy the people you happen to dislike can have consequences. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all because we were given a... Uh a set of circumstances. 
We repeatedly learned that at a time of crisis and fear and general consternation, there are few things more supernaturally irritating than those people who feel impelled to tell you what you should be learning from it. The time to lecture your neighbour about getting their chimney swept is not, as they fling futile buckets of water at the inferno consuming their home. But with all due acknowledgement that we are not out of these woods, and nor should we be in any hurry to do another lap of them, and no, we don't know how we'd be yelling at our neighbour from in the woods either, but it has been a long year and at any rate this metaphor sort of works if you imagine the protagonists live in a village in the woods. God, do we have to do all the work. Maybe not quite everything we've learned during our forlorn, bewildered trudge through 2020 has been depressing, alarming or tedious. We learned, and many listeners will have had personal experience of this, that people are willing to help us and that we're willing to help them to degrees which may have surprised us in both directions. We learned that despite the impression created by much of our media, and indeed despite the best efforts of some of our media, the social contract is remarkably resilient. Notwithstanding the fear of the pandemic and the colossal uncertainty created by its economic consequences, nowhere on earth, give or take one or two punch-ups over the last packet of toilet roll, did things degenerate untowardly, at least not because of COVID-19. We learned of the astonishing capacities of science as a vaccine was developed and deployed within months of the virus being identified. We may, all things considered, have relearned an eternal lesson easy to forget in turbulent times, that while the obnoxious, stupid and selfish may make the noise, they don't necessarily have the numbers. We learned that, when it matters, most people will mostly do most of the right things. And while we certainly learned in 2020 a great deal indeed about the perils of tempting fate, nevertheless, a much happier 2021 to all our listeners. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. And that's all for today's late edition. A big thank you to our producer, Marcus Hippie, and our studio manager, Sam Impey. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening and a very happy new year. 